This is the Future of Work Limited Series Podcast, brought to you by Andrew R. Timming, Professor of Human Resource Management at RMIT University. This podcast series brings together world-leading experts and thinkers to discuss employment trends and the future of the labor market. You can follow me on Twitter at TimmingLab. That's T-I-M-M-I-N-G-L-A-B. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm Professor Andrew Timming, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Daniel Davis, a senior researcher from Hassel. Based out of New York, Daniel is a senior researcher at Hassel, focusing on the relationship between people, space, and design technology. Prior to joining Hassel, Daniel was the director of research at WeWork and a research assistant for Anthony Gaudi's Sagrada Familia. He originally studied architecture in New Zealand and later did a PhD in computational design at RMIT University in Australia. Daniel is a regular columnist for Architect Magazine, and his research has appeared in a variety of publications, including Wired, Fast Company, and the Harvard Business Review. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I wonder if we could just begin um, just with a little background about yourself. How did you get interested in this sort of field of environmental psychology and, and built environment in relation to the workplace? Yeah, so my background's in architecture and I really, when I was studying architecture, I really got into a field of um, computational design. So kind of using computers to design uh, fairly complicated looking buildings. And at some stage in my career, I, I guess I started to feel a little bit kind of disillusioned with what I was doing and that um, it was all well and good to kind of create these um, wonderful looking spaces, but it didn't really have anything to do with the people that were actually inhabiting them. Um, and so from that, I became more interested in kind of like, what was the rationale for designing these spaces? Like, and what criteria do we decide that a space is good or not? Um, how do we measure the kind of performance or effectiveness of a space? Uh, and I became more interested in kind of using these skills of computation and um, machine intelligence to, to really understand, I guess, like what the kind of um, impact of the space was on the people that were using it more so than just the kind of visual appearance of the space. Mm. So you're more interested in the social science of design rather than the science, so to speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd put it like that, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, so I think maybe a, a good place to start this conversation is to talk about um, the, um, the impact of COVID-19 on uh, working arrangements for people across the world, uh, with obviously a, a pretty significant increase in um, working from home. Um, could you speak a little bit about um, that uh, development and whether you think that this is um, something that's likely to continue moving into the future? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm based in New York and in New York um, and for the last nine months, maybe 12 months now, it's just been 
absolutely horrific in terms of uh, what's been going on. And most people, I think, that have had the means to have been working at home. And there's definitely, I think, a question um, in New York and internationally, like, is that trend going to continue forever or is this just a kind of temporary um, uh, thing that's happened in, in culture and that we're going to kind of flip back to what's normal? And I actually think Australia is probably one of the more, if you're trying to answer that question, probably one of the more interesting case studies, right? Where in most places in the world, they're still kind of combating the pandemic and still trying to um, find a way out of it. In Australia, while you guys haven't completely eliminated the pandemic, you've definitely kind of suppressed it um, to a place where in some parts of Australia, like say Perth or Brisbane, um, things either have been back to normal or they're quickly heading that way. And at Hassel, we ran a survey recently of um, 800 Australians to kind of understand what their attitudes were towards work. And what we saw in that data was that although there had been this really quite dramatic increase in the number of people working at home, it seemed to indicate that the kind of pendulum was starting to shift back in the other way, that people that were working at home we're interested in coming back to the office in some capacity, um, maybe not full-time, maybe kind of part-time. And in many ways, I think that makes sense. If you are an office worker at the moment and um, you're working back in the office during a pandemic, like you kind of have to ask yourself, like what would it take you to work at home, right? Mm. Um, so in some ways, I think we're probably at, peak working at home but um, I think there's going to be this kind of residual effect where people are much more comfortable working at home um, for at least part of their work day or part of their work week. Mm. Yeah it's it's definitely presents a, a series of challenges even this podcast which I'm doing at home as, as we speak um, there were some problems associated with it this morning we had our lawnmower scheduled to come and um, he drove all the way out here and unfortunately I had to send him back because I couldn't have the lawnmower going in the background and all these kinds of issues. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't really be concerns had we all just sort of continued working from the office where I'd have a quiet space. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely um, presented some challenges. So your, your perspective then is that you think that um, maybe things will start to settle down a little bit and, and move back into a, a more normal working from an office rhythm? Uh, yeah, I think it depends a bit on the company, right? Um, so different companies, they're not just a homogenous kind of group of organizations that there's different kind of incentives playing out for them. So if you're something like a, a tech company in San Francisco and you're paying just an exorbitant amount for rent, um, the people in your company are mostly doing kind of heads down focus work, not a lot of collaboration. Um, if I was in that situation, I'd be kind of looking around and asking myself, why am I paying all this rent in San Francisco when we could be doing all this work online? But if you're, say, a design firm in Brisbane and um, a lot of your work's kind of collaborative, bringing people into your space is part of your brand or part of how you kind of win clients, then I think in that kind of instance, it's much more likely that those kind of firms will be returning back to the office in some capacity, but um, yeah, definitely their employees are going to have this um, 
maybe a desire or some kind of ability to um, work from home in some capacity. Mm. Do you think there's any evidence that working from home has resulted in lower levels of productivity or higher levels of productivity, or maybe it's been neutral or is it too early to tell? Yeah, it's, so there has been some studies on this and some studies are showing that people are more productive. Um, But I think you kind of have to add a couple of asterisks to all of that work, right? Um, And one of the asterisks is is that a lot of this is kind of self-reported productivity. Um, Firms have been laying people off. People may be kind of inclined to overstate their productivity at home um, with fears of kind of getting laid off. The other kind of asterisk that I'd add to that is the type of work that's been done at home isn't necessarily the same work that's been done in the office. So um, in kind of our conversations with a lot of clients, you'll hear them kind of talking about how maybe they're kind of knocking through a whole bunch of work that was on their backlog that they never really had time to get around for. But at the same time, they might not have been doing, say, business development work, um, meeting with clients, kind of winning, winning new projects to fill that kind of backlog, or they might not have been doing training or onboarding. So there is some evidence that there are, um, in some aspects, um, some degree of maybe productivity lift, but then at the same time, I think there's kind of these caveats that we have to be pretty careful when we read that data. What about you personally? Do you feel more productive working from home or from an office? Uh, So I actually worked from home prior to the pandemic and um, the whole pandemic happened and my work life didn't really change. And if anything, I'd say it actually got a little bit easier because all of a sudden, rather than being this um, lone voice on a speakerphone in a conference room, um, everyone else was kind of with me on Zoom mm-hmm. um, and we're all kind of on an equal footing. Uh, so yeah, for me personally, it, it probably got a little bit easier, but I wouldn't say that I'm a, a typical case. Mm. I mean, there are different ways of looking at this, I suppose. Um, you know, on the one hand, obviously, um, the fact that we're cutting out commuting time means that we have more time to dedicate to work. So there could be an extension of working hours from that point of view. Uh, but then on the other, um, it is, I don't know, maybe I guess this is maybe best posed as a question to you. Is it more difficult for employers to um, ensure that workers are being productive? In other words, is, is, does working from home present greater opportunities for employees to uh, shirk their responsibilities or their duties and, and uh, sort of surf the web or, or um, you know, play, play games on their phone rather than getting work done? Yeah, with Sensum, I'd say pretty bad behavior around this, not necessarily from the employees, but from the employers. So when the pandemic was really kicking off, there were some organizations doing things like installing software on computers that was monitoring whether or not employees were logged in. Mm. And a lot of the evidence and kind of workplace management shows that like to get the best out of your employees, they really have to believe in the mission and what they're doing and why they're doing it and kind of putting in these punitive systems to measure whether or not employees are logging into their computers isn't necessarily the best way to get the best out of them. Um, So I think companies that went into the pandemic with a good culture where employees really believed in what they were doing and um, 
were driven by the kind of mission of the company uh, probably continue to perform pretty well. But I think there is this um, cohort of companies that perhaps relied on observation and surveillance to um, kind of monitor employees and monitor what they're doing. And those companies, I think, potentially are finding it more difficult to go through that transition. But I think it speaks more to the, the difficulty of kind of managing culture remotely than it does really of the difficulty maybe of people kind of focusing in these different environments. Mm. Are there um, some industries or sectors where working from home may have actually led to productivity increases versus other sectors or industries where working from home has led to productivity decreases? And, and what would be the sort of distinguishing factor between whether working from home works or doesn't work for an organization? Yeah, I, I don't have any like hard evidence on that. Um, but I was just kind of answer that just off the cuff. My guess would be that organizations that um, either had a culture of kind of high trust already within their employees um, probably did better through that. And then also organizations where more of the work is easier for an individual to do um, in a kind of focused setting rather than a collaborative setting um, probably did better. But again, I, I don't have anything kind of concrete is like drawn to say that. Mm, yeah. No, I mean, it just sort of reflecting on my own family's experience, you know, myself being in academia, I've always, always worked from home. This is not really anything new for me. Um, we, mm. we tend to spend most days working from home and a couple of days in the office. Um, but then I have two brothers, both of whom are tattoo artists. And um, obviously during the lockdown, they were completely unable to do uh, any work. So I think maybe it's the, a lot of the interactive services and, and hospitality that have been really uh, hardest hit by this pandemic. Um, let's uh, shift now to um, a different focus of the conversation, if, if you'll allow me. Yeah. Let's assume that um, people will start to return to the office um, in greater numbers as, as the pandemic sort of sorts itself out and people gain um, immunity um, with sort of widespread vaccine and, 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 and other factors. What would an ideal office look like in the future? And how do you think that that office will look different from what offices look like today or maybe a better way of putting it is what they look like a year ago? Sure. Um, I think it helps to kind of think about this in a kind of timeline because there's going to be a period where people are coming back to the office um, and the pandemic's not really kind of sorted out and things are still a little bit up in the air and mm. it's going to be a little bit of a kind of gray zone. Maybe not everyone's back in the office at that stage. And I think during that kind of phase, you're going to be coming back to the office. There's going to be a lot more um, basic kind of things like sanitation stations. Um, offices have taken out a lot of kind of chairs out of the spaces Um yeah, you might be working in shifts in the office. So you might have a A team and a B team who are coming in one week each. Um, and then I think as the pandemic kind of gets under control and hopefully kind of recedes into the background, some of these kind of more immediate changes may sort of fade away too. Um, so things like um, sanitation stations may not be the sort of thing that is the lasting impact. Mm -hmm. But I think that there will be these larger kind of 
um, cultural changes in how organizations are run. And in particular, I think just this notion that people can work from home and can work product productively outside of an office is going to be kind of a, a lasting impact. And so that may manifest in the space in a number of ways, um, including people maybe using spaces outside of an office um, for part of their work. Maybe the office itself has less space for kind of this focused individual work and more space for kind of collaborative um, work or people coming together. Um, and I think the other kind of aspect that we're thinking about a lot is that if people are spending less time in the office and that the office is this um, really important kind of uh, instrument for kind of driving and affecting culture within an organization, then it's kind of doubly important that an office is effective at doing that and kind of communicating and um, driving those kind of cultural values that you want to imprint on, on a company. Mm. What, what would the, the physical and social features of a good office look like? Can you identify, for example, a company that maybe we, we will have heard of that has a good structural environment for um, an office today? Um, yeah, off the top of my head, like, I'm not sure if anyone went into the pandemic with a kind of pandemic-proof office. Um, I'd say one of the things that maybe we would see kind of changing is in the last 10 years in office design, there's been a real focus on increasing the density in spaces. So um, packing people in a bit tighter together, um, you will have seen most of the most people will be familiar with kind of the shift from going from kind of closed individual private offices to cubicles to um, the open office as one kind of manifestation of that. Um, certainly in the, the near term, that kind of focus on density hasn't been a kind of successful or hasn't been good for people wanting to return to the office. And I suspect some of the kind of focus on making offices denser will kind of loosen a little bit as, as people start to return. Thinking of just different university offices that I've had over the years, um, I tend to prefer older universities in terms of office space because they tend to have these sort of self-contained offices that are in a private room. Um, and as you pointed out, there's been a sort of evolution towards sort of open plan um, offices. And I think, you know, a lot of universities today, they still have, um, self-contained rooms for professors, but they always have a glass wall rather than a real wall. Yeah. Uh, do you yeah. think that that's a intentional feature on the part of management um, to be able to, to sort of create a, an atmosphere of surveillance to avoid people from just, you know, shirking off their work in their own private office? Yeah, potentially. I remember um, when I was studying at RMIT, we moved into the new design hub there and mm -hmm it was, we'd gone from kind of this private or not private, but maybe a couple of people in an office into um, like a hundred person, a hundred people on a floor, uh, no corridors, no private anything. Like the only private space on that floor was like the bathroom stalls. And it was easily the worst space that ever worked in like by none. Like, yeah, it was atrocious to work in. And I think some of that was, um, people within the university saw these big kind of open spaces as 
symbolizing collaboration, but and wanted them as a place that people would come together and interact. But I think what's often kind of missed in that symbolic um, manifestation of these kind of collaborative spaces is that collaboration takes many different forms. So sometimes collaboration is people coming together in a big open space and building something, but sometimes it's two people sitting down and having a really intimate and difficult conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's people getting on Zoom and talking remotely. Sometimes it's people just using Slack and kind of messaging one another. So I think, um, yeah, these open spaces like that, uh, without the kind of auxiliary spaces that um, balance them out, um, tend not to be particularly successful and has been a really a negative kind of um, up outcome of the recent say last couple of decades of office design Mm. yeah i mean i'm just trying to think of open plan offices that i've seen um, rather than being um, paradises of collaboration i typically see a bunch of uh, office workers sitting at their own desk with their headphones on so that they can drown out all the noise going on around them and sort of maybe even more detached than they would be had they had their own private spaces where they could actually, uh, you know, engage in those kinds of collaborations when they need to, rather than being forced by the environment to constantly nonstop incessantly engage in collaboration, which does never happen. Yeah. And there's um, quite a bit of research that supports that um, observation that that's exactly what's happening in these spaces that aren't designed well um, and just have one kind of single open space. Hmm. It's curious though, if, if those types of offices tend to be perceived by employees as quite alienating, then why are organizations, why are employers still going down that route? Yeah, um, I think a lot of it's to do with design and uh, there's a way to kind of do an open plan office that's successful and but you need to kind of have the spaces around it that support uh, collaboration and support privacy. And a lot of this is, I think people, I know, I'd say this in general about just architecture is that we just as an industry don't really go back and kind of understand or study the projects that we build. And because of that, some of these kind of feedback loops are a bit, a bit broken and don't necessarily get into the, the people that need to hear it. Um, and so I think for some, some design firms that aren't, aren't getting that feedback, it is possible to be creating these spaces um, that really aren't working for the people, but maybe serving more the, the people that run the companies. Do companies actually think these things through when they design their environments or when they purchase a, a location for their office? Do they use, for example, consultants that are experts in environmental psychology to think through how the space can influence social interactions and productivity? Or is that sort of kind of secondary and they're just like, okay, I think this space will work. Because, you know, I think in many ways, the decision doesn't appear to me to be very evidence-based. There's sort of a, mm. um, a trend on the part of employers to, to make their offices look cool or fun or exciting. Um, I was recently in an office in a a tech company that I won't name um, that 
built in a big kind of like a children's slide um, from that would let you go from one level to the next. Um, yeah. And they thought it was really cool and exciting and hip, but I didn't see anyone ever using it. And it just seemed kind of like artificial fun, almost like they were trying mm. too hard. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, is this something that organizations actually think about the environmental psychology of their spaces, or is it sort of um, something that's going under the radar and something that maybe they should be thinking about because it could generate better returns for them if they did think about it? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, as an industry at a whole, as a whole, um, this isn't particularly common and that there isn't a lot of research going on on um, how people behave in space and what the kind of impact the space is on the people that work there. But certainly within Hassel, we have a strategy team and um, on virtually all our kind of workplace projects where um, interviewing clients or interviewing potential um, users of the space. We're running surveys, we're doing observational studies, and we're trying to really triangulate and understand what the, the pain points of the current spaces that people work, like yeah. what, what those are, and then kind of work back from there to design something that really kind of suits the, that particular organization and that particular culture. Um, but that's, that's not necessarily a particularly common way of thinking about the workplace. Tell me a bit more about Hassel and the work that you do. What, what is the organization about? What's its mission? Yeah, so Hassel's a company of uh, probably 800 designers and we've got offices all around the world. So Australia, London, parts of Asia, States. Um, and we do um, basically anything in the built environment. So everything from kind of workplaces to universities, airports, um, city planning. And our real kind of mission as a company is to, um, it's quite simple really, just, just to create spaces that people love. Um, and so we're really focused on um, combining both the sort of creative aspects of doing good design, but also infusing that with the strategic intelligence necessary to ensure that these creative and interesting spaces actually perform in the way that we say that they are. Hmm. I think it's uh, kind of interesting how you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, how you're interested in, in using, for example, computational methods and machine learning methods in relation to design questions, because it, it does seem kind of a contradiction in the sense that design seems very emotional and effective, whereas um, computational methods seem very dry and sort of rational. How are you able to actually bring those methods together to deliver a, a good outcome? Yeah, I think one way of kind of thinking about that is to say that I mean, when we do research, we're not really coming ever coming up with the solution, right? Like you're um, observing what's happening in the world and you're making some inference about maybe why that's happening or what's kind of causing that. But really that's just the starting point when you're thinking about a design. So um, if you're designing a new workplace, knowing what the existing condition is and knowing how people think about it, um, it gives you a starting point, but it doesn't tell you necessarily what you need to do to 
create the next iteration of that. And I think that's where a lot of the creativity comes in that you start with it from this really well-informed position. And then you go through that creative process of um, sort of extrapolating forward and imagining what that might look like. And then you come back and test and measure and see whether that, um, that kind of creative moment led to something better. Mm. So if you had to say who, who would be better at creating a, a good workplace environment? Is it more art or is it more science? Is an artist better off oh, at no, creating don't make me choose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I'd honestly, I'd want one that was designed by both, you know, like I think you can't have, if you had one or yeah, if you just had one of those things, I think the workplace would either be really dull or perhaps not, not um, functioning in the way that you expect. I think a great workplace really balances those two things and um, is both functional, but also kind of unexpected and delightful at the same time. Yeah. You've been listening to Daniel Davis uh, talking about the built environment and environmental psychology, uh, particularly in relation to the workplace. Uh, Daniel, just as a way of uh, drawing this um, discussion to a close, um, I know it's no one has a, a crystal ball or anything like that, but um, uh, what are your prognostications or your um, expectations for the way that the built environment will change uh, as we move into the future of work? I really um, firstly just hope that the pandemic can kind of be brought under control and that people can kind of go out and enjoy being with one another again. And I really hope that this kind of experience of being in these lockdowns has given people um, new ways of kind of thinking about their workplace and also new opportunities to kind of measure and understand and think about the way that they are doing their work. And um, yeah. Good. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your time. I appreciate uh, you being here to speak with us today. Cool. That's great, Andrew. Thank you.